0: Good morning, my name is Kyle. I am the pastor here at Emanuel. For those who don't know me, I would love to get to know you uh, today after the service, but uh, it's uh, my privilege to get to continue to lead us through our sermon series, looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Today, we're going to go to the mailbox, pull out our letter to Smyrna, uh, which was a church that had a sort of an interesting culture in that they Uh, received quite a bit of rejection uh, for their faith. And while I don't think I know even a little bit, really, about how much they uh, were persecuted and oppressed, uh, I can kind of resonate with what it's like to live in a culture and to interact with people who might reject you because of your faith. Back in 2022, I was invited to sit as the representative for Christianity on a multi-faith panel at a conference. And I, I was pretty interested in it because they were discussing the topic of the afterlife. What do each of these faiths believe happens after we die. And so I was kind of intrigued and excited and did some research into the organization. It turned out it was a really interesting opportunity because it was actually being hosted by another faith group who Uh, despite having their own position, said they wanted to hear from all the other faiths. And so I got to thinking about what I would prepare when suddenly about a week later, the host of the conference called me and I was a little bit shocked. The host said to me, you know what, we're so excited that you're going to come, but we have one request. I was like, okay, what is it? And they said that you don't actually say that your faith is exclusive And that all these other people uh, might be right in what they believe. Well, I said that might be a little bit tricky because the premise of what we believe is both inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive in that anyone can come to faith in Jesus and Jesus has died for everyone's sins and through faith we are saved and we can experience an eternity with him. But it is exclusive in that... Only those people will get to experience what we believe is a new heaven and new earth one day for all of eternity. And so as I was kind of giving this little bit of a spiel, I was stopped right there and told that, well, if I couldn't let everyone share what they believe and sort of support them, I couldn't come speak. And so lo and behold, uh, I didn't end up speaking at the conference. And that was an interesting sort of place to be. I mean, I've experienced different rejection in different ways because of my faith over the years, but this was one of the most blatant. Uh, And that is sort of a little bit of a taste, I think, of what is taking place in our culture and all around the world. That We're allowed to believe what we believe sort of in our own homes or in our faith communities, but there is sometimes some opposition or some request to reject what we believe in other spaces. And for the church in Smyrna, they face that to sort of the nth degree. They faced that with such difficulty that Jesus decided that he would write them a letter and include them as one of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Now, there's all sorts of churches that took place. There weren't just seven churches at the time that this was recorded, but God decided out of all of those churches, this church needed to hear from him. So let's see what Jesus had to say to them. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 11 today. If you don't have a Bible, uh, they're available at the back. You can just take one. You can keep it. It's our gift to you. Otherwise, feel free to follow along on the screen or pull it up on your phone. But this is what Jesus says. Through John. He says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you uh, that you passed this letter on through John to the church in Smyrna, but down to us today. And Lord God, while well, I recognize that we don't face uh, quite the same extent of difficulties uh, that that church did, Lord, we do recognize that there are still places where we have fear. There are still places where we might uh, re- receive rejection or uh, at least a lack of acceptance in some ways. Lord God, As we come to that place and from that place, Lord, we need to receive your word as well. And Lord God, we recognize that by your Holy Spirit, uh, you can do a change in our heart to move us from fear to faith. And Lord God, I just pray that as we study your word today, that you'd begin to do a good work in us that way. Lord God, for those who come into this place with a lot of fear about faith, God, I pray that you'd begin to break walls down today. For those who come with a boldness of their faith, I pray that you would just continue to fan that flame that you have given them and allow them to be bold in your name in our community and around the world. So, Lord God, we thank you for this time we have together. Holy Spirit, would these words be yours, not mine? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Smyrna, it's this really interesting city. At the time when this letter was written, it was known as the Crown of Asia, Located in what we know is modern-day Turkey, eh? uh, it is a pl- church that is in a place that was quite great. In fact, they had such pride in their city that they had on their currency, their coins stamped the words, "The first city of Asia in both size and beauty." Imagine to have that kind of faith, to be able to stamp that on your coins that would be circulated all over the place. There is a lot of pride. And part of their pride comes in the history of their city. You see, the city was destroyed by the Persian invasion back in 580 BC, only to be rebuilt again by Alexander the Great. They have this great history of being people who, despite the fact that they had received incredible persecution by the Persians, to have overcome with the backing of their great leader. And so this city took uh, sort of this sense of pride in its history, in its culture, in the flourishing of this city. It was known as being the first city of Asia, the city that came back from the dead. And that identity is really important to know because as we talked about last week, each of the letters that Jesus gives to these churches, he declares who he is in response to what's taking place in that city. And so as we consider that at the opening of this letter, let's just see what Jesus had to say. In verse 8, he described himself this way. He said, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who has died and come to life again. Jesus wanted to remind his followers in this city that his identity was greater than theirs. His, the, the pride that they could have in him was substantially ba- backed far beyond what they had even seen within their city. Yeah, it was the city that had been raised from the ashes back to life, but Jesus was the one who came back from the grave and continued to live and continues to live to this day. He described himself as both the first and the last. He says, I was here before history began, and I will be here long past the expiration of any one of your days. And he's been saying this for hundreds of years at this point. We can go back 500 years before this letter was written to the book of Isaiah and see that Jesus said this. He said, I, Yahweh, am the first and the last I am he. And because Smyrna was made largely up of Jewish people, both those who had converted to Christianity and those who continued to live the Jewish faith or had gone to become more secularized people, they would have known God's identity this way. And so as this word is written to them, they were to receive it from someone who was bigger than anything that they could imagine, better than this wonderful place that they lived, better than the history of what had taken place in their city, was he, the one who died and rose again and lived from a place of victory. And this was an important reminder because of what the church was facing The church was facing incredible, incredible amounts of persecution. We're going to get to that in a bit. But as we get there, what we want to hear then is Jesus saying something to them. Jesus, from this position of declaring that he is he, first, last, dead, back to life, says this. I know your afflictions and I know your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are actually a synagogue of Satan. So don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. He'll go on to say that there's actually going to be people who will die for their faith. Now, right at the beginning there, Jesus uses this word that we've translated to affliction in English. But in the Greek, there's sort of a little bit more of an emphasis in meaning. The word that this is translated from actually gives the sense of experiencing sort of a crushing pressure. Have you ever felt some experience where you've just felt so much like pressure, it feels like your life's just going to cave in? Or you're just going to like mentally break. Or that you're just not going to financially survive this. Or that that relationship's just going to break. This is sort of the the sense of anxiety and tension we're supposed to fear. Because this is the fear and the pressure that these early Christians were under. They were being told from all over the place, you need to abandon your faith. You're going in the wrong direction. And if they would continue to stand in their belief in Jesus, they would face not just slander, but poverty. The people, we're told, have have this incredible sense of poverty, and that's because they weren't able to even get jobs in their own city where many of them had been born and raised. And even though they had connections with other people in the community, because of their position as followers of Jesus, They were left to just go fend for themselves. They would have been mocked, and then even worse, they'd be put on trial and condemned. And this pressure, this came from the Romans. The Romans were the occupiers of the area in this day, and they had this set of beliefs that their Caesar, their leader, was essentially God himself. And they would ask people to worship him along with their deities. And if you wouldn't, they would actually throw you in prison. If you were, out, out, you know, sort of outspoken, you were you're sort of a, a flamboyant person for Jesus. They would say, "Hey, we're going to put you into the grave." The Romans hated the Christians and they hated the Jews, and the Christians though stood in between because while the Romans hated the Jews. The Jews had convinced the Roman leadership of the time to let them keep worshiping if they would pay a specialty tax. And so the, the Jewish people in the community, being a large percentage of the population in town, would end up collecting these specific taxes that they would pay to the Roman leaders so that they could continue Uh, worshiping and living their lives. And and because of this, because there seemed to be some sort of homage paid to Caesar and to the Romans, they'd say, okay, you can have jobs, you can go about doing your business in the city, and, and we'll be okay with that. But this didn't stand for the Christians, and the reason it didn't stand for the Christians is because the Jews looked at them as people who had followed a complete idiot, They were like, this sacrilegious leader has totally kiboshed all that Judaism is about. Why are you following Jesus? That guy is crazy. And so when the Romans would look at the people, the Jews would say, give us this protection because of the taxes we pay, but don't give it to them. Those Christians, even though many of them are ethnically Jewish, we have nothing to do with them today. And so the Christians would go on with no protection from either side, with both sides coming at them. One of the best stories that exemplifies this that we have in history is the story of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a church bishop who came 60 years later after this letter had been written to the church. In fact, he would have been about 30 years old uh, or just under in his 20s when this letter had been written. And then he became this sort of great leader in the church of Smyrna where this letter was written to. And Polycarp, he was that outspoken person of faith. He was a person who had no problem declaring who Jesus was. And this started to get on the nerves of both the Romans and the Jews. And because of this, the Romans decided to try him and execute him, potentially, as an atheist. Now to us, this word atheist doesn't really make sense in this context because we know that he believed in God. But to the Romans, he was an atheist because he didn't acknowledge Caesar as God and he didn't worship any of these Roman deities. And so what they did is they decided to grab Polycarp as an example and bring him before the people of the city. So they put him in prison, and then at the right time when they could gather all the people, they brought him into the stadium, sort of to stand in the arena. You know when you, you think of something like the movie Gladiator and you see where the gladiators would battle or where the lions would, would kill people like we see in the movie Ben-Hur? These are the thing, This is the place he would have had to stand, in this blood-soaked stand surrounded by the entire city. And as Polycarp stood there, the Roman leader came to him and said, Swear by the genius of Caesar that you will repent, and we want you to say, away with the atheists. So away with the Christians. They want him to reject both his God and his social identity. And so there's this great story that's captured by uh, an ancient writer that describes what happened, is that Polycarp stood in the middle of the arena, and he looked around at all of the people, and then looking up to heaven, he pointed at the crowds and said to God, Away with the atheists. This made the people so mad that the people in the stand started to clamor, and the, the magistrate ends up saying, Swear the oath, and I will re- leave, uh, release you. Revile Christ, and you will not go to the grave. But Polycarp stood his ground and he said, 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then? can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? This made people so mad that even all of the Jewish people on this particular day, which was the Sabbath, immediately began to grab and collect whatever wood they could. They were breaking seats out of the stadium. People flooded out into the city to grab Kindling, and there they burned him at the stake in the midst of them all, because he followed Jesus. This is the time and place that this letter is written to. This is the things that they faced as believers in trying to follow Jesus. And so as Jesus gives them his identity, he says this, I know your afflictions and your poverty i know those are powerful words i know we all know what difference there is to being encouraged by someone who knows what we're going through and someone who does not for those who have gone through big health crises for someone to come alongside you and encourage you through something like a cancer journey or, or through a, a difficult season or the loss of a child or something like that, to have someone who comes alongside you who's gone through that to say, I know what you might be feeling. I know how difficult this might be. Man, that's a that's encouraging. That's a help, and it's certainly a lot more helpful than when someone who has no idea what we're going through says, I know what you're dealing with. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> that doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. The same thing maybe professionally. You've had someone who's come alongside of you and said, I know what you're going through and just be encouraged. No, you're doing a great job. I know for me, that's that's a huge thing. When someone who's been a pastor in ministry or something comes alongside and, and they encourage, those words have uh, an extra level of meaning. Not that the other words don't matter, but there's just this top up that comes because I know they've been there. And so for this church to hear Jesus say, I know, would have been such a great reminder. A reminder that they weren't in uncharted waters. A reminder that they, they weren't alone in the things that they were experiencing. As Jesus says, I know your afflictions. They're reminded of the fact that Jesus was mocked. He was beaten. He was tortured. And even for the worst of those people who would face death for their faith, they know that Jesus was crucified for them. Jesus says, I know your poverty. I mean, this isn't just empty words. Jesus was born in an animal stable with a trough as his bassinet. As a toddler, his family fled as refugees. Then when he moved back, he lived in a little backwater town up in Hicksville that no one really cared about. And then even when he came into the city to do ministry, he was homeless, relying on the support of others. For Jesus to say, I know, allowed them to understand, wow, he sees me. He cares about what I'm going through. He's speaking to the truth of the situation from a position that goes far beyond what I've even experienced. What an encouragement. And so as Jesus says that even though you're going through all that, you are rich. You are rich in the experience of knowing me. Of being able to identify with what I've gone through. Of being able to see what I can bring would have brought them an incredible sense of faith. And this wasn't a surprise. This wasn't a surprise to people in the early church days, that they would go through trials. And it's actually very different, their understanding, than ours. I don't know about you, but when I read things like this, sometimes my instinct is to go to being like, why did this happen? Like, what did the church in Smyrna do to deserve this kind of pressure? What did these people do wrong that this would be allowed to take place in their life? Like, it just, it just doesn't make sense in my own mind if I view it from my own perspective. But the answer to what they did wrong is nothing. In fact, they were doing the right thing to experience what they were. Jesus himself taught his people that in this world you will have trouble. In John chapter 15, we read this. If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant isn't greater than his master. So if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus never painted this picture that Christianity was going to be all rose-colored and lovely. He didn't tell us that there weren't going to be times of difficulty and times where where we we would never receive anything but blessings. He didn't say life's going to be easy for you by following me. He said quite the opposite. He said, expect this if you're living with me. Now this creates an interesting dilemma. What do we do with this in our life? How do we go about living facing some of the pressures, even in a minute way, that the people of Smyrna might have faced? Like, Let's be real. We, we just don't face the type of persecution people face in Smyrna or all across the world. I've had the privilege of worshiping with the persecuted church in underground church in Asia. My experience here on a Sunday is very, very different from my experience there. But that doesn't diminish the things we go through. That doesn't diminish the very real things that we might have to face. There is a reality that in living in the way of Jesus, we might face questioning, rejection, being overlooked in some kind of way, to even mockery and total sort of antagonism that might come our way. For some of us, maybe we've experienced that as, as parents of trying to raise our kids to follow Jesus, and we make choices that look different for our kids. That other people kind of go, Well, that, what are you doing there? That doesn't make any sense. Others of us, as working professionals, maybe we, we spend time trying to live our kingdom values in the business sector, and we get overlooked. Because we're not willing to play the game. Maybe we get rejected just because people know what we do on the weekend. In small ways, many of us have fears of these kind of things. We worry about what people might say if, when they say, hey, what'd you do on this weekend? And you're like, hey, I... Uh, spent time with my community group and we read the Bible and we prayed and then I went into church on Sunday and we worshiped and it was awesome and we talked about how what God is doing in our lives after service over a cup of coffee. A lot of us don't, wouldn't say that because we're afraid what our neighbor might think, what our coworker or boss might have to say. I know I've faced it. I mean, there's nothing worse as a pastor than meeting someone new at a party. Because what's the inevitable question? What do you do? I'm a pastor. All right. This is not where the party's going to be. Let's go that way, right? Like, that's, that's what you face. And in a very real way, for a lot of years, I wrestled with the temptation not to say what I did. Or to say to me I work for a nonprofit that's all about supporting people mentally, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> I'm a pastor. That dude's a dud. Let's get out of here, right? <laughs> and we we experience life that way. And we know that if we kind of just keep our faith to ourselves, it's gonna be okay. I'm, I'm gonna have a an all-right Christian experience and and I'm not going to face that much pressure if I just kind of do it on my own. And you know what? I found that as I live this way, I actually don't face that much of what might come as persecution. I don't experience the, you know, Jesus uses the word, the language of the synagogue of Satan, that Satan is coming after you through other people to press you down. well, that's because we're not doing a very good job of doing the thing Jesus called us to do, which was living like him and for him, with him. There's a psychiatrist who lives in the city, and he says this. He says, Satan's supreme object is to hurt Christ and Christ's cause. You personally are of no interest to him. It is only as you relate to Christ that you assume significance in the enemy's eyes. Like, the, the off-ramp is right here. I'm just going to tell you that. Before we go on any further, if you, don't, if you want an easy life, if you want to find yourself getting your way, you got to get off before you get on board with Jesus. You're going to take the target off your back. Life is going to be easier. You can even hold on to your personal faith in Jesus, and it, it's true. You're going to have a really mediocre faith. You're going to have an okay church experience, You're still going to get to come on Sunday. We'll still let you join a community group. You can still come to program. And it's going to be okay. But I'll tell you, you're going to rob yourself of the fullness of the experience that Jesus calls you to. And as much as we might not like it, part of that program is experiencing the pressure Just as much as pressure turns coal into diamonds, pressure turns immature Christians into mature ones. A psychologist said if we want to grow to emotional maturity, we have to continue to go where we're most uncomfortable. And in the same sort of way that's true for us as people of faith if we're going to grow in our faith and our trust and our reliance on Jesus, we have to be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable. We have to be willing to press in to that place where where we might butt up against something that we don't like. And we have to be okay in being with Jesus in that place. Jesus doesn't promise us that he's going to airlift us out of it. We Think of the famous psalm, Psalm 23, in the valley of the shadow. That's where Jesus gives us a green pasture. That's where Jesus provides a feast for us in the presence of our enemies. That's where he fills our cup up to overflowing, where he anoints our head with oil. Jesus doesn't take us out of it. Because he went through it and he invites us in with him as well. That's not all bad. There's an encouragement even here within the letter. We see that as Jesus speaks of what the people will go through, he doesn't just say, I know. But he says, I'm also in control. Let's look at verse 10 again. It says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, interesting, he, he talks about there's going to be this persecution that he knows about, and it's going to last ten days. Now, in the understanding of the Hebrew mind of that day, ten days doesn't necessarily signify ten literal days. What it means is is 10 is the number of human completion. What God is saying is he's saying you're going to go through persecution that's going to purge the human out of you. (laughs) It's going to take the flesh out of you and you're going to come on the other side as a fully formed being. How do we know that? Well, we know because this church still exists today. Did you know out of the seven churches in Revelation, Smyrna is the only one to exist today? It still survives in a town, in in a city in Turkey, and it continues to thrive despite persecution. For the whole of this church's history, it has been against persecution. First it was the Romans and the Jews and even to this day it's uh, the Muslim people who occupy the city who sort of let them have a little bit of their faith but when they go too far they try to shut down what the church is doing and how they're trying to expand in the city. Jesus knew this as he spoke to the people and he said you're going to go through it and even though some of you are going to die because of it You're going to go to the point of death. Some of you, because you're going to be martyrs for your faith. Others of you, because you're going to live under persecution until the day you die. I have a promise for you, he says. I have a promise of a victor's crown. I have a promise that you will only experience one death. And so he encourages us. He says... Do not be afraid, but be faithful. Verses 10 and 11. Be faithful even to the point of death. That comes after he says, do not be afraid about what you are about to suffer. Faith is the opposite of fear. The results of fear in our life are the total opposite of the things that Jesus would have for you and me. We get to be formed in the fire and trials of life if we pursue after Him. We get even better to experience the fullness of everything that He would have for us for eternity, new heaven, new earth, if we live our lives with Him and for Him. Doing this is really the test of our faith. It's one thing to say, I have faith in Jesus through everything. It's another thing to live it out. I remember for the, the first number of years after, I um, can't remember which school shooting it was, but we, we all sort of remember uh, Columbine. And there was the story that came out of the young girl, Cassidy, who stood up in front of the shooter and was killed because she had faith in Jesus. And I remember as a teen, that was really powerfully motivating Because I remember just thinking, like, what would I do? Like, what would my experience be? But what I realized was wrong with that question was, that wasn't actually the question to ask. Because I didn't ever go through that situation. I will likely never go through that situation. What a better question for me to ask is, what do I do in the little things? What do I do in the moments of discomfort? What do I as a pastor do when someone asks me, what do you do? What do I do in the little moment when someone says, how was my weekend? What am I to do when someone asks me any hosts of questions of what Jesus does for bringing me meaning? Something that just opens up the door, even if they never meant to invite me in with the question of Jesus. Well, some of us, many of us will never face, probably ever in our lifetime, the type of persecution Smyrna did. We have to ask ourselves, how am I doing in these little ways? You know, some of these things, it, it came to me this morning, even as we were preparing for uh service and some of our team got together and prayed i i I realized that some of the persecution that we face and some of the little tests of faith don't even happen outside of our church walls they happen right here in this place i mean let's just be honest i'm not going to ask anyone to put up their hand who sits at the back or not in the front two rows because you're worried about what people might think as you worship what you're wearing? Are you raising your hand or not? Did you clap when Thomas encouraged us to clap? All those kind of things? For honest, a lot of us have a lot of fear of our faith, even a place like this. A lot of us are, are fr- afraid to serve, because what might someone think? What if I'm not as good as that kind of person? And we actually impose the same kind of pressure that we see in the outside world, even on ourselves in this place. That's ridiculous. It's like absolutely preposterous that we come in to this place with that sort of feeling. If, if it's not that safe for us, we need, yeah, we need to deal with that. But when it is safe in this place, which I think this place is, we really need to be comfortable doing things. There should be nothing that holds you back from being the person who raises your hand on a Sunday or who kneels in your seat to pray when everyone else is doing something else or the person who, who feels empowered to go and have a meaningful conversation about what's going on in your life and reveals the vulnerable parts of what's going on in your heart. If we can't do that in here, how on earth are we going to survive it out there? How are we going to choose faith over fear in our world if we can't do it in this safe place? I challenge with you that. Consider that as we're worshiping week after week as you gather in community and different programs in your community groups. This is a testing ground for our faith. And then as we go, as you go throughout your week, when someone asks you tomorrow, what do you do on the weekend? Do I have the faith to say, I went to church. Preacher stunk, worship was awesome, it was great. You know, whatever it is. Are we willing to even invite that kind of scrutiny in? So many of us are so far off from saying, am I willing to die for my faith? If you're there, awesome. Keep going. Encourage others. Bring others along with you. Please. We need it. We need individuals like Polycarp. His example kept the church going for hundreds of years in a city that faced the oppression that it did. But while most of us will never be called Polycarp, we can be that person who genuinely aspires to live out our faith in all of the little things that we'll come up to this week and next all throughout this new year. And as we do that, I want you to be encouraged. First, if you failed. If you're like me, you have failed in this at some point. Maybe it was this week. Maybe it was long in the past. Who knows? If you're like me, you failed in this. The good news is Jesus is the one who died and came back to life again. Jesus offers every one of us new beginnings again and again and again. Jesus says, if by your faith you turn back to me and you ask for forgiveness, I will forgive you. I will continue to make you new. I will continue to walk along with you through everything that you're facing. So take the opportunity today. If you failed, it's okay jesus knew it was going to happen he's died to forgive you just turn to him and go to that place for others we need to go to him and just be reminded that he's been through it all and that he has given us his holy spirit to live within us to embolden us and empower us in every single place God put you exactly where you are for a reason. He put you on your street, in your workplace, in your family, wherever you find yourself this week. He put you there, but as he did it, he put his Holy Spirit in you to help you as you live and move and breathe. So I invite each one of us to just come to Jesus and just ask, by your Holy Spirit, will you empower me? Will you help me stand boldly for you, Jesus? I know that what you have gone through, and I know that I face difficulties. And God, I can't do it alone. I need you with me. Thank you for being with me. And just invite Jesus into that place, knowing that he knows exactly where you've been. He's been far beyond you. And that as we go through the pressures of our modern day, he's with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. God, I I just thank you that you're not a detached God, that you're a God who came to live amongst us. That you are a God who lived and moved and breathed in a body. Jesus, I thank you that you endured insane hardships. So that every person someone who's poor, to someone who's a refugee, to someone who's mocked because of what they stand for, to someone who's beaten and tortured, to someone who's martyred where they give up their lives for faith in you, God. Lord, Jesus, I thank you that you did it all so that no matter where we are, we could come to you and know that you know us, that you see us, that you were there before us, and that you will be here long after us. Lord, while we don't face this, the same pressures that these people in Smyrna face, Lord God, we, we, we do. We just come before you honestly and humbly and recognize that there's things that make us uncomfortable. There's pressures that we give into, both inside of the church and outside of it. In our family life, in our, our work life, in our school life, Lord, we, we know that there's many things that that urge us to to bend the truth or omit our honesty about our life with you. Or even worse, Lord, we know that there's some places where we just feel like, we feel like we should just give up on you because it would be so much easier. God, for each one of us who's going through that today, I just pray, would you just encourage us? Would you just remind us by your Holy Spirit of who you are and what power you have in our life, that you are the one who didn't just die, but you conquered the grave, that you have the victory already. Lord God, would we be people who would be engaged with you in every moment so that would help us through each and every day, each and every situation that we face. And Lord, as we grow to rely on you, help us to see your beauty even more. Help us to praise you even louder. Help us to push forward even when we feel like giving up. We thank you, Jesus, that you're in front of us, that you're beside us, that you're behind us, and that you're within us. And we pray this all in your precious name. Amen.